Well, we have all been to a lot of weddings in our lives, right? I think I've been to more than you have. <laughs> Most of them, the bride and the groom promised to be together, what? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. That's it. That's all the farther we're going on that one. We commit at the start of our journey to stick together to the very end. The problem is that when we make that promise, in the back of our minds, we're thinking, oh, the better it is going to be amazing and awesome, the worse, now this ain't going to be that bad. Few of us actually think that the worst is going to happen to us. We put our hope in the better and put aside any thought of the worse. And, you know, a few people do experience those extremes, but not many. That's what we tell ourselves. So when someone like the Apostle Paul comes across the pages of Scripture and actually experiences the great highs and the great lows, maybe we should listen to him. How did he handle those things? He should get our attention in the midst of those wild swings of life because how he handled those is a good example for us so that we can learn how to handle those extremes in our lives as well. Because if Paul can honor Jesus through what he endured, surely our little minor swings up and down or the big swings up and down, we can keep our faith. So we wrap up our study through Philippians this morning. And there, I think there are two things on Paul's mind as we begin in Philippians 4, verse 10. My plan was to finish this series next Sunday, but somebody's throwing my daughter a baby shower in Tacoma on Saturday. So, you know, we have to be there. Besides, I haven't been yet, there yet this year, so we're going up next weekend. And so uh, Chris Cannon is going to preach and I didn't want to have to come back to Philippians after the gap. So we're going, to, we're going to finish the entire book this morning. We're going to start a brand new series then in two weeks, which at the wrap we will preview this morning because it is the series I never thought I would ever, ever even want to preach. I don't want to preach it, let's be clear. A, a series that we have to preach. So more of that later. But Paul is ending this morning with really two topics. And this should be two sermons. It's a holiday weekend. We will, we, will, we, we will take these two sermons, we have plugged them into one, the same length as one, to be clear. So, we'll, we'll try anyway. Give me credit for trying. One of the, one of the words or the ideas in, in the last uh, portion of the book of Philippians comes out of these, this experience that we have of, of the wild swings of life. How do you navigate, you know, between better and worse, between richer for poorer, sickness, health? Well, I think we discover here how Paul managed those swings in his life. And as his life was shaped by the gospel, he learned one thing, contentment contentment. So, what is biblical contentment? A definition is contentment is the state of being, the state of being satisfied with what you have and not desiring more. Contentment's the belief that I have, I've got everything that I need in this present moment. It's the confidence 
that if I needed anything else, God would give it to me. And it's the certainty that when I need anything else, God will supply that for me. And it applies to every area of life, whether it's our finances, our job, our health, our marriage, our friendships, kids, your dreams for the future. Whatever you have, whatever you're experiencing, you have everything you need to be content today. And if you're not, you, you don't get to blame God because it's not his fault. So let's see how this principle works out in Philippians 4. I have three observations about contentment here. Number one, contentment must be learned over time. You have to learn it. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. All right, let's put those two verses into the context of Philippians 4. I think Paul could have skipped from verse 10, clear down to verse, what is it, 20, verse 20, and just gone straight to verse 21 with the concluding greetings. He could have done that. And he seems very ready to do that at the end of verse 9, but he wants to talk about money, this partnership that they shared together. And he begins his letter in chapter 1 with his gratitude, his thankfulness for their long-standing um, partnership with him in the gospel. He worked hard in the chapters that, that, that intervened between then and now, teaching them what they needed to understand about the Savior and about themselves and how they could be the best gospel partners sharing in the ministry together in their relationship. And so here then in chapter 4, he goes back to that idea with which he opened the letter. And that was this partnership, this sharing of the gospel ministry together. And here at the end, he uses the same vocabulary to refocus on this gospel partnership that they shared. And he explains here at this point, now he can talk about money after this whole book, how money and finances are a part of that partnership. He couldn't do that in chapter 1, but he's now developed their relationship throughout this letter, and he's built them up to this point. And before he signs off, he wants to, them to make sure he knows uh, they know about this element of their relationship. And he wants to make one thing very clear as he talks to them about their gifts that they gave him. And that is, in all of life, no matter what came, he was content, for better or for worse. He says it very clearly in verse 11. He says, I have learned to be content. In verse 12, he adds, I've learned the secret of being content. Why did Paul have to learn to be content? Why wasn't it just a gift God sent to him? Zap, you're content. Well, the answer, I think, is that God is more glorified when we struggle through that process as we are weaned from dependence on the things of this world. The picture of that is really what a, only a mother can truly understand. A child is born, and they long for, for his mother's breast as the source of nourishment. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, they all come right there and from the same place. When he's hungry, he cries, and mother knows what to do. Feeds him, puts him back to sleep. But the day comes when he has to learn to take a bottle. 
He cries. Big tears. His arms reach out for mom. She pushes them away. He fights and he pouts and he screams, but to no avail. What's happened to mom? She who used to be his best friend is now his enemy. And if mom has a heart at all, she cries too because things are going to be different moving forward. But when the battle is over and the tears have stopped, when he learns to eat with his brothers and sisters at the table, he comes to mom just because he wants to be near her. The truth is, unless a mother weans her child, they will never grow up. Though it may seem hard, and though the child misunderstands what's going on at the beginning, if a mother truly loves her child, she needs to wean that child. And once the job is done, the child no longer begs for that which was once indispensable. Once he could not live without his mother's milk, now he no longer needs it. To be weaned is to have something removed from your life which you thought you couldn't live without. Most of us live in the opposite of that position. In our hearts, we think, oh, if I'd be happy if only. New car, new job, whatever, new dress, new husband, new wife, whatever. Since life is hardly ever that simple, we stay frustrated when we ought to be content, when we ought to be happy. And no wonder we're never satisfied. And instead of being weaned from the things of this world, we are wedded to them. Or maybe I should say welded to them. You see, contentment has to be learned. Second observation out of the text, contentment comes from my confidence in God. See, happiness depends on my circumstances, but my contentment the more I'm confident in God, the more content I will be. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And in case we missed it, he adds that phrase again at the end there, whether living in plenty or want, it doesn't matter. We assume he means that being well-fed is good, and, whether, and going hungry is bad, but that's not what he's saying. We know false, Paul faced at least one shipwreck in his life. He's, picture yourself at night out, you're trying to get, find land somewhere. He's, he, he's been through a shipwreck. He's had multiple visits to jail as an inmate, not a guest. He's experienced some deeply humbling circumstances, but he also knew what it was like to live in plenty. And so, we don't know, uh, we do know about the secret of which he speaks here. It's, it's, it's a secret. He tells us that secret all through the book. How was he content? Chapter 3, verse 7, whatever regains for me, I counted them as loss. Chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So when I'm suffering, I'm becoming more like Christ. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. 
He is saying your boasting, your life, your joy, it needs to be found in Jesus. And when we find our joy and boasting in Christ, then we can be content and humble. Whether the circumstances are bountiful or whether I lack. You see, poverty and prosperity both have their good uses and both can lead us astray spiritually, either one. And if we take the words of Jesus seriously, he says, you know what? Prosperity is, is, a, is a bigger trap for the believer than poverty. Have you ever seen the film Cool Runnings? Haven't seen that in decades. Not recommending it, just saying. It's about the first Jamaican bobsled team to go to the, to the Winter Olympics. The late John Candy plays a former American gold medalist who becomes the coach for these, this Jamaican team. Now, later in the story, as you've gone through this whole process, they discover that he's got a bit of a dark secret. In the Olympics, following his gold medal win, he brought disgrace on the U.S. He, he, I lost my train of thought. One of the, uh, one of the Jamaican bobsledders eventually says, well, what's going on? How come all these coaches don't like you? What's happening here? And finally, he begins to explain to them the history. And he says, I thought I had to win. But I learned something. If you're not happy without a gold medal, you'll not be happy with it either. And so the second time, he cheated. He weighted his, his toboggan or whatever, his bobsled, so that they could win. Paul also knew that riches are not the way to contentment. He was telling us to hold material things lightly in our hand. Paul refused to be a slave to wealth. He could walk away from prosperity if that's the path that God was leading. What about us? Are you killing yourself to get the gold medal? Because if you're not happy without it, you're not going to be happy with it either. Contentment, it's not automatic, it has to be learned. Happiness depends on circumstances, but contentment on our confidence in God. Are we truly confident in Him? Third observation, contentment rests on the strength of God. If you study the life of Paul, you'll see a man whose life begins in great affluence. He was an up-and-comer. He was the next big thing. And he ends up, to borrow his own words, counting all of that as rubbish, trash. And in the meantime, between the great upbringing and, the, and this counting at all loss, he says this in 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes. <clears throat> five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. No, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, from bandits, bandits, from fellow Jews, from Gentiles. In danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and gone often without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've gone often without food. I've been cold and naked. 
Besides all of that, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. See, it's out of that life experience, it's out of that context that he speaks. See, we can't picture Paul relaxing at Lydia's house. He just led her to Christ. She's this great CEO of a big company having stakes together. You have to hold in your minds the first, the second Corinthians 11 passage with him struggling to keep his head above the water as the ship sinks. Hold in your mind the, the vision of, of a body crumpled on the ground just covering his head from the next stone on its way in the bloody dirt. Then you read um, Philippians 4.13, which says what? I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This verse is not about chasing your dreams, following your passion, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. No, this is a testimony of someone who has Jesus and has found in Christ something supremely valuable and satisfying. In the great highs and the great lows of life, Paul has found the great constant, centering his life on Christ himself. He wants his readers to understand that he's dependent on the Savior. He's not dependent on their monetary gifts, and he's talking about money here. As valuable as those gifts had been, he tells them the secret, in case they've missed it in the book of Philippians. He tells them one more time. It's Jesus Christ. This verse explains how he managed to live above his circumstances. He did it only by the power of Christ, which dwelt within him. For him, the secret of contentment isn't a stiff upper lip. It isn't find that positive mental attitude. He was content because he had learned to, to rely completely and only on Jesus. Contentment is more than positive thinking. You must have Jesus within your heart and in your life. Are we who believe better than other people? No. Do we suffer? Yes. And what makes the difference? We have the power of the indwelling Christ within us who gives us the strength that we need. So we ask ourselves, is that enough? Is it enough? Is Jesus Christ enough for the problems of life? Is his broken body enough? His shed blood enough? His intercession, his prayer on us enough? Can his power meet us as we face the problems of life? Yes, <laughs> yes, a thousand times yes. And there are saints across the ages who will testify to us if we would just listen that Jesus Christ is enough. So how are you doing in the area of contentment? As you mature in Christ, are you becoming more content? How quick is your impulse to find your satisfaction only in Christ? How quick is your impulse to go to the joy of the gospel in times of stress and frustration and disappointment, in better and in worse? 
contentment. There's a second idea that comes across in this text. They're actually quite related. The first is contentment, and the other one we've mentioned, and that is partnership, this sharing. In the NIV, it translates this, this word as sharing. And so the second question we have to ask is, what is biblical partnership? This is contentment. Okay, so what's partnership? Verse 14, he says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. There it is, the sharing. They helped each other. They were partners. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, not that far away, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. You see, this is a letter written to a church who cared. And when Paul visited Philippi, about 13 years or so before this letter is written, he had planted the church there amongst enormous um, um, spiritual opposition. He and Silas showed up after following the Lord's clear command. They meet uh, Lydia by the, by, the, by the river, and he ends up then being beaten and arrested and thrown in jail as, as the gospel begins to spread. And there's this miraculous deliverance at midnight with the earthquake, and the whole jailer's family comes to Christ. You see, I think the Philippian believers, they understood what it cost personally to, to Paul and to Silas to bring the gospel to them. So when he gets kicked out of town for his own safety, then they travel to Thessalonica, later to Berea and Athens and Corinth. They send him money. They send him gifts. And we know that Paul kept track of all of that because he says it's in the matter of giving and receiving. I keep good records, he said. But because of that sharing together, they were partners. Because partnership is a two-way street. He preached the gospel, which benefited people where they weren't, and they supported him financially. And then he shared, and then those people would support him financially. Two lessons, I think, about this concept of partnership in the gospel. Number one, biblical partnership includes my finances. It includes money. Let's look closely at the text. He says in verse 14, yet... I'm content, yet it was good of you to share, be a partner in my troubles. Paul is content, and yet, however, partnership was appreciated. And when he uses the word share, other places translated as partner. He uses this word and, and related words in, the, in these verses. And he brings us back to what he had said in chapter 1, verse 5, being because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, from that day Lydia came to faith until now, being confident of this, he who began a good work will carry it to completion. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart, whether in chains or defending the gospel. All of you, what? Share. We're partners in God's grace with me. You see, Paul learned to be content, but that didn't mean that he didn't need their partnership. He didn't need their support. Their participation with him was commendable. And he reminds them how far back it went. Verse 15, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. You're the only ones who sent anything. 
For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. This partnership we have, it goes way back to when you first came to know Christ. That first gift then you sent me. There were other churches who could have entered into this partnership, but they didn't. So finally, nine verses left in this book, and this letter, that's all there is. Paul directly connects the idea of sharing or partnership or participating, all possible translations of the same idea or word, with the matter of giving. His readers would understand that on all of these key passages where he uses this word, Paul's developing their, this idea of their sharing of their partnership in the gospel. And that partnership includes money, finances, giving and receiving. You see, at the core of this letter, what is it? It's a letter from a missionary to his supporting church. They're partners in this agreement, in this arrangement. Partnership in the gospel includes finances. Number second observation, biblical partnership has eternal benefits. Whoa. He says in verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment, and I have more than enough. I'm content. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Remember, he brought them. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. His Old Testament ideas of, of, the, of the offering. And he reveals in that, I think, his heart that's huge. He wants them to know that while he appreciates their gifts, he wasn't depending on them because he'd learned to be content. He had lived to, to learn to live with a little or live with a lot, and he'll do it again. That is not the normal fundraising letter that comes across your desk, is it? Far too many are in a crisis-oriented, negative sense. We're in trouble if we need, when we need your help to survive. If we don't hear from you in the next 10 days, we'll close our doors. And while that may be true from a human point of view, it's not the, not the approach the Apostle Paul takes. Some Christian organizations may serve the kingdom best by actually going out of business. Ooh. It's a hard thing to say, but not every group or ministry necessarily needs to keep going on from year after year. Some do. Others might have served their purpose and would be better off closing their doors or merging with another ministry. But here in this text, Paul was glad that the Philippians gave. Why was he glad they gave? Not for himself, but for what it did for them. He is saying that God keeps an account for us in heaven. Every gift given to God for his glory goes into that account. So yes, when we give, we benefit God. We help and be partners with someone else. But we reap eternal beneficiaries. We become those eternal beneficiaries when we give. Are you making regular deposits into that account? See, John the Baptist in Luke 3, he highlights really the fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and our finances. And all these people, they're, they're out in the wilderness. Three different groups of people are there in Luke 3. 
And they want to know, how do we bear the fruit of repentance? We want to follow you. What does it look like? And he gives them three answers. Luke 3, verse 11, everyone should share their clothes and give food to the poor. Tax collectors, you guys don't pocket extra money. You got enough. Soldiers, just be content with your wages. Don't extort money. Each answer John gives relates to money and possessions. That's not what they asked. They asked, how does the fruit of my spiritual transformation get demonstrated? And John talked about money because our approach to our money and our possessions is important. It is essential to our spiritual lives. John the Baptist couldn't talk about spirituality without talking about how to handle our money. And Paul couldn't talk about a partnership in the gospel, a sharing of the ministry together, without talking about handling of money. And Paul says, don't live for the dot. We live today, that's life on earth today is the dot. Your dot, some dots are bigger than other dots, but whatever, it doesn't matter. We live for the dot, while Paul says, are you living for the line? The line is eternity. The short-sighted person lives only for the dot. The partner in gospel ministry lives for the line, lives for the future, for that account that God has in your name in heaven. If this is all kind of new to you, for most of you it's not. It's all out of the treasure principle. We've, we handed these out, you know, every time we do a campaign. I've got, I found four of them in my office. If this is new, you want to read it, it's a short book. Just go to the welcome cart, steal it, you know, borrow it, whatever. There's no charge. Take the book. The first four there, if, you, if, you, if they're gone, I don't know who's at the cart today. Write their name down, I'll get some more, and we'll get them to you. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating concept that we often forget. We're living for the dot. And Paul says a gospel partner lives for the line. We live for eternity. And then out of that principle comes verse 19. And then he says, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You join in partnership with the gospel, you candle your resources well, God is going to meet your needs. There's a, there's a source of the promise, it's my God. He doesn't just say God. He says, look back at the history. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my God, will meet your needs. There's a statement of the promise. He will meet your needs, all of them. Whether it's forgiveness, he'll give you pardon. You need more grace, his grace is sufficient. And there's the sufficiency of the promise according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You can always come back for seconds. There's always more. Paul says their every need will be wonderfully fulfilled. Not their desire, their need. Our God who has infinite riches and glory will wonderfully fulfill all the needs. So let's draw this study to Philippians, in Philippians to a close. As we stand back from this letter, 
with its rich history, its deep theological roots, what do we learn? Well, we have found a letter from a missionary to his supporters whom he deeply loved. Mature Christians, he says, are serious about the things of God because they pursue seriously their relationship with God. I mean, we all want the riches of his grace. We want to live with him always. We don't want a life-sized salvation. We want an eternity-sized salvation. Therefore, we don't stop at any point. We press on for the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, is there some seriousness in your life to the things of Jesus? Are you legitimately pursuing him? Are you growing in his fullness? If your mind is really set on him, how's that working out in, in the way you're living? Paul says, you can't just show up at church. You can't just gloss over such questions. You need to ask yourself, don't assume that you're, because you're in close proximity to a community of faith and you're listening to God's word that you're personally in pursuit of Christ. You must pursue him. We can become content in ourselves and not experience the holy. That holy discontentment that should push us to find true contentment in the riches of the grace of Christ. In Paul's experience, some chose to partner with him and others did not. If you share here, if we are partners together, do you really know what you're doing? You're investing in a couple named Winnie and Floor who are literally giving their lives in Central Asia, planting churches and raising disciples because we share with them. You're investing in people who are translating and supporting translation for people who don't have a Bible in their own language. You're supporting church planters in Asia, working with refugees, bringing them into the family of God and planting churches. We're supporting a couple who's training pastors with solid theological education so that the church in Asia can be healthy. You're partnering with, with Devana so she can lead our children and love them to the Savior. You're giving that Andrew can help coach Peninsula High's Frost Soft baseball team and build relationships there so the Bruce can develop grief share program to help folks who have no other choice at this stage of life than to live it without the one they deeply loved. We are the Philippian church supporting missionaries, local and abroad, and that important and vital partnership is the sharing of life, and it includes your money, folks. Let me just say it, it includes it. And in this letter, we have watched the journey of our faith over 2,000 years. Paul goes to Philippi, he meets Lydia, the wealthy CEO who comes to know the Lord, but so does the little slave girl. And so does the jailer, the blue-collar guy, unlikely converts to the faith in one church. And as they mature in their faith, they share the gospel with others. The great story of God reconciling men and women to himself, despite of their sin. And that faith grows and it grows. And it moves from city to city, from nation to nation, 
Over the last 2,000 years, it has spread across tribal and linguistic and ethnic boundaries. It's spread across to Asia, down into Africa, into Europe, eventually to New England and across the U.S. That wasn't the U.S., but now it is. Do you know how the gospel came to the South Bay? If you trace it back, it's because the Apostle Paul went into Philippi and to Ephesus and to Corinth. And if the gospel can do that and change the world and change and transform the minds of those who believe and hold its powerful reach and the, of the promise of eternal life for over 2,000 years, it can transform you today. And then day by day by day, until that day when you join with the saints to receive the supply of all your needs according to God's riches and glory in Christ. And today, you can not only join with the Apostle Paul, but with countless millions who throughout history still come to him, the Savior, and say, I counted all loss next to the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, my Lord. To live truly is Christ, and to die is incomparable, infinite gain. Do you know Christ, that Savior, as your own? That's Philippians. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you. It's been a wonderful, refreshing, for me, journey through this letter. But I pray this morning for those who don't have that relationship with you, that your spirit might, might speak to their hearts, that today they might come up to somebody with a red lanyard afterwards and say, I just need to know Jesus, pray with me, that we might change lives, that we might continue to tell the story of the hope of the wonderful grace of Christ and that the way we live, we might explain to all that, that you truly are the only hope we have and that you are in you we are content and in you we are partners together in the gospel. That we might count all things lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing you, our Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.